By 1924, there were over two and a half million radio sets in homes throughout the country. And it was in that year that Americans for the first time heard their first political conventions via the radio drone on and on. The Democrats nominated John W. Davis after 102 hectic ballots, and the Republicans nominated silent Calvin Coolidge. In the November elections, Coolidge was elected to four more years in office on a campaign slogan, Keep Cool with Coolidge. With the elections out of the way, Americans, who by now seem numb to just about everything, were stunned by the story of the thrill-killing of Bobby Franks by Nathan Leopold and Richard Laub. Laub was the youngest graduate the University of Michigan had ever had at the age of 18, and Leopold, 19, was Phi Beta Kappa and had a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Chicago. Both were cum laude graduates, and both were from well-to-do homes. One afternoon in the spring of 1924, after seven months of planning, they decided to kill someone. They decided to kill a person just to see what it felt like to kill somebody. Then, after they had killed their victim, they would dispose of the body and get away with what they felt would be the perfect crime. They had no particular victim in mind until a neighbor of theirs by the name of Bobby Franks walked by. Bobby knew and liked Leopold and Laub. And when the two boys offered the 14-year-old youngster a ride home from school, he eagerly got into their car. Bobby was taken to about four blocks from his home. Then all of a sudden, Laub grabbed him and stuffed a gag into his mouth, while at the same time Leopold took a heavy cold chisel and smashed it into his skull four times. With his skull split open, the young victim slumped into unconsciousness and died. Leopold and Laub next drove idly around Chicago until they came to a marshy wasteland outside the city. There they carried the still warm body over to the marsh, and they both took turns holding Bobby Frank's mutilated head under the swamp water until they were sure all life was gone from the boy's body. Next, they poured hydrochloric acid on the face of the youngster to make his identification more difficult and then they wedged his body into a drain pipe nearby, which was obscured by shrubbery and weeds. Their perfect crime completed, the two murderers went to a restaurant and got something to eat. That night at Leopold's house, they called Mr. Franks, a retired pawnbroker, and told him that the boy had been kidnapped and would be returned for $10,000. They went on to say that he would receive further instructions by mail on when and where to pay the ransom money. Mr. Franks notified the police immediately. Then, as fate would have it, two construction workers taking a shortcut home through the marshy area outside of Chicago found the body of the murdered boy. At first, Mr. Franks would not believe the police when they told him that they had found his son murdered. But after many hours, he finally accepted the fact that his son had been killed and his kidnappers were now asking for money for their infamous deed. As the police moved in on this case, they began to find clue after clue to this so-called perfect crime. When they were disposing of the corpse, Leopold dropped his glasses. Unable to locate them, he left them behind at the scene of the crime. It took the police eight days to trace down the oculist who made this prescription, and then Leopold was arrested. Leopold protested he was innocent and came up with an alibi. He said he was out joyriding in his car with his friend Laub, and Laub backed his story. But the Leopold chauffeur told the police that Nathan's Willis Knight car never left the garage on May 21st. Then, two newspaper reporters found Leopold's Underwood portable typewriter in a lagoon, and the type matched the ransom note Bobby Frank's father had received from the two. Under questioning, Laub broke and confessed everything. The trial of Leopold and Laub, which followed, was the sensation of the country, and famed criminal lawyer Clarence Darrow was hired to defend the murderers. Darrow was able to convince the court that what these boys needed was a lifetime to think over the immensity of their crime. Judge John Caverly, who heard the case without a jury, as requested by Darrow, seemed to agree and both men were sentenced to life in prison without hope of parole. Laub was killed in a prison riot 12 years later in 1936, and Leopold lived long enough to finally get a parole in 1958. 
He devoted the rest of his life to serving humanity and died in Puerto Rico on August 29, 1971. By 1925, Americans became used to crime as they saw it spring up almost everywhere throughout the country because of the Prohibition Amendment. Writers and critics alike referred to the amendment as the Noble Experiment. It went into effect on January the 16th, 1920, and after that, the country settled back into a, well, that's that attitude. The 18th Amendment, in a sense, was not only a protest against demon rum, but it was also a defense by old rural America against the threats of industrialism and social change. From the earliest colonial times, farmers and frontiersmen have viewed cities as the stronghold of Satan and the seedbed of every real and imaginary vice. It was in 1919 that the Drys, the people who supported prohibition and were against the consumption of alcoholic beverages, had secured ratification of the 18th Amendment. And Billy Sunday, an evangelical preacher, said, Goodbye, John Barleycorn. You are God's worst enemy and hell's best friend. Your reign of terrors and misery are over. The blissful bone-dry utopia which the prohibitionists foresaw failed to arrive. Instead of utopia, there would now flourish a horde of bootleggers, moonshiners, racketeers, venal judges, corrupt police, and crooked politicians. Working together, this unholy crew would take in billions of dollars by selling their illegal hooch to an eager and thirsty public. Furthermore, there were no prophets who could have foretold of the awful things that would happen because of the new amendment. No one foresaw the rum ships prowling off the coast, the illicit breweries and distilleries, the speakeasies, the corruption of police and the judiciary, the hijackers and their machine gun gang wars, the millionaire booze barons, the murders and the assassinations, the breakdown of morals and manners, the rise of organized crime, and the long train of evils which were to spring forth. Nor did anyone have any idea of how difficult it would be to enforce the law. According to Thornston Veblen, an economist for the times, drinking during the Roaring Twenties became a sign of superior status for those who were able to afford the indulgence. Women, who previously would never have ventured into a saloon, now drank and used drinking to show they were emancipated. To accommodate drinkers, over 220 illegal saloons known as speakeasies sprung up. In the big city speaks, Texas Guinan welcomed her customers by yelling out, Hello, suckers! She cleared up to $4,000 a week by providing customers with exotic settings, songs, and skits. Texas always insisted that she didn't sell the stuff because her customers brought their own booze and their hip flasks. The truth was, however, that you could get a booster when your flask ran dry if you knew the head waiter or if you look like you knew him, or if you knew somebody who was pretty sure he knew him, or maybe you could get a drink if you were thirsty and didn't look like one of those seedy prohibition agents. But not all joints were that classy. By contrast, there were some places called smoke joints, where they sold wood alcohol and Jamaica ginger, which blinded, paralyzed, and killed thousands of Americans by the end of the era of prohibition. But to most Americans, those things happen to the other fellow, not them. At Bell Livingston's joint, customers were required to sit on the floor in oriental style because, as Bell put it, a person can get hurt falling off a bar stool. After torch singer Helen Morgan's place was raided for selling booze, she was placed on trial. The jury quickly dismissed the case by saying that they could not take the word of the two prohibition agents that she was selling liquor against the word of Miss Morgan. To enforce the 18th Amendment, only 1,500 prohibition agents were hired by the federal government. These noble snoopers were paid an average of about $2,500 a year and were supposed to keep 125 million people honest. The Prohibition agents did their best, and two of them made a spectacular try to keep the nation dry. They were Isidore Einstein, Izzy, and Mo Smith. Their antics in rounding up lawbreakers became a legend during the 20s, as well as the most hilarious capers of the day. 
Izzy lived in New York's Lower East Side in a $14 a month flat on Ridge Street. He was a bulbous little man who had been a salesman, but was now a clerk for the post office. With a wife and four children to support, Izzy was looking for a better paying job, and one day as he was reading the newspaper, he read about the government's plan to hire agents to enforce the 18th Amendment, and their salary would be about $2,500 a year. So Izzy applied and was told by the chief enforcement agent in New York, James Shevlin, that he just didn't look the part. Mr. Shevlin was right, for Izzy was 40 years old, almost bald, 5 foot 5 inches tall, and weighed about 225 pounds, most of it around his middle. Izzy wouldn't take no for an answer, however. He told his future boss that was just exactly why he should have the job, because no one would ever suspect him of being a prohibition agent. Furthermore, he went on to say that he spoke Yiddish, German, Polish, and Hungarian fluently. Then, too, he could make his way through French, Italian, Russian, and even knew a few words of Chinese. Mr. Shevlin shook his head and hired Izzy. Izzy's first assignment was to clean up a place in Brooklyn. Authorities suspected the house to be a speakeasy since drunken men were always seen staggering from the building. Not only that, the air for a half a block around was reeking with fumes of beer and whiskey. Despite this, none of the agents were able to get inside the place. Izzy knew nothing of sleuthing procedures. He simply walked up to the joint and knocked at the door. A peephole opened and a hoarse voice yelled out, Who's there? Izzy replied that he was Izzy Einstein and that he wanted a drink. Oh yeah? Who sent you here, the voice inquired. My boss sent me, said Izzy. I'm a prohibition agent and just got appointed. As the door swung open, the doorman slapped Izzy on the back, bid him to come in, and while laughing his head off, told Izzy that was the best gag he'd ever heard. There were a half a dozen men drinking at a small makeshift bar as Izzy stepped in. The doorman was still laughing as he yelled to his boss, Serve this man a drink! He's a prohibition agent! By this time, everybody in the place was laughing, even the bartender. As Izzy stood there, the bartender asked him if he had a badge to prove he was a prohibition agent. Izzy produced his badge and everyone laughed some more. As the bartender served Izzy, he commented on the fact that the badge looked just like the real thing. It was then and there that Izzy informed everyone that they were under arrest. At that point, the joint exploded and the exits were jammed as people tried to escape. It wasn't long after that that Izzy became the terror of the speakeasies. So much so was he a terror that in many speakeasies his picture hung behind the bar so the bartenders could identify him and destroy any evidence before it could be used against them. During the next five years, Izzy did all sorts of crazy things to arrest people who were violating the 18th Amendment. Once he pranced into a gin mill with his badge pinned to his lapel in plain sight and shouted, Hey, how about a drink for a hard-working prohibition agent? Everyone who saw the jovial round little man trying so hard to be funny rushed forward and handed him a drink. Izzy would take the drink, arrest them, and close the joint. Since Izzy was having the time of his life, he decided to share his fun with a close friend, Moe Smith. Moe joined the force and was just like Izzy. He was a natural comedian, tipped the scales at about 235 pounds, and was just as roly-poly as they come. Newspapers during the 1920s were looking for any stories with a connection to prohibition. Casting about for stories with humor, they seized upon the exploits of Izzy and Moe. The two fat agents would even schedule their raids to suit the convenience of reporters. One Sunday, accompanied by a swarm of eager reporters, Izzy and Moe established a record by making 71 raids in little more than 12 hours. Then there was the time that they staged a raid on a speakeasy for the Calvary Baptist Church. The entire congregation watched as the agents busted the speak. While all this was happening, the Reverend John Stratton, pastor of the church, delivered one of his hell, fire, and damnation sermons. After the sermon was over, the arrested persons were given a chance to repent as Izzy and Moe led them off to jail. No morning newspaper during the early 1920s was complete without some story or account of the exploits of Izzy and Moe. 
What impressed everybody about the two men was their ingenuity. There was one New York speakeasy agents could never quite nail down. So, in came Izzy and Moe. On a cold winter night, Izzy stood in front of the gin mill in his shirt sleeves until he was red, shivering, and his teeth were chattering. Then Moe half carried him into the speakeasy, shouting excitedly, Give this man a drink! He's just been frostbitten! The kind-hearted bartender, startled by Moe's excitement and upset by Izzy's miserable appearance, rushed forward with a bottle of whiskey, which Moe promptly snatched and put the man under arrest and closed the place. Then there was the Brooklyn Club, which catered to judges and lawyers only. The doorman to the club let Izzy in because he wore a frock coat and carried a huge law book under his arm. Once inside, Izzy opened the book, adjusted a pair of horn-rimmed spectacles, and as he was reading his book, he lifted his hand as a waiter went by and said, A beverage, please. When the drink was served, Izzy and Moe busted another joint. One of the toughest places for Izzy and Moe to crack was an establishment that sold only soft drinks. The reason it became suspect was because its customers would come away tipsy after a few shots of soda water. The reason it was a difficult task to bust was because the owner would never sell liquor to anyone he didn't know personally. For Izzy and Moe, it became a challenge. They got a group of agents, dressed them up in football uniforms, smeared them with fresh dirt, and headed for the soda fountain. Izzy, with a football tucked under his arm, a helmet hung over his ears, and his fellow agents whooping it up, moved into the speakeasy. There, Izzy stated to the owner that they had just won the last game of the season, and they now wanted to break training in a big way. The owner, pleased with such a rush of business, sold each agent a pint of whiskey, and another speakeasy was busted. Once Izzy received a letter from a distressed housewife whereby she stated that a man at a grocery store charged her $2 for a can of tomatoes. She went on to tell that when she got home, she found that there was nothing in the can but a lot of nasty smelling water. When she told her husband, he grabbed the can, ran out of the house, and had not been seen since. Izzy naturally hustled down to the store and waited his turn in a long line of impatient customers. He discovered that in order to get whiskey, you ordered a can of beans. If you wanted gin, you asked for tomatoes. Izzy bought some of both and then busted the place. For more than five years, the whole country laughed at the antics of Izzy and Mole, with the exception of the bootleggers and speakeasy proprietors. Then in 1925, some austere, high official in Washington, D.C., who never got mentioned by the newspapers, put out a directive that agents were to keep their names out of the papers and that they were to act dignified at all times. Within three months after the directive, Izzy and Moe were let go. They turned in their badges for what was called the good of the service and dropped out of the public eye save for an occasional Sunday feature story in a newspaper. Prohibition finally ended in 1933 with the passage of the 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th Amendment. With the end of Prohibition came the end of a somewhat colorful era of American history. Today, names like Al Capone, Johnny Torrio, Dutch Schultz, and the other hoodlums are all that most Americans remember about the noble experiment. But there are still enough people around who will always remember the colorful antics of Izzy and Moe. Besides Izzy and Moe capturing the eye of the American public, there were some other fads and fancy stuff for which the Americans went wild. In the early months of 1923, a dried-up little Frenchman by the name of Emile Couet arrived from France to go on lecture tour. Suddenly, he was the most talked-about person in the United States. Institutes were established in his name. Audiences thronged to hear the master speak. And wherever he went, hushed audiences listened in awe as Emile Couet told them the secret to life. Just who was Emile Couet, and just what were crowds flocking to hear him say? Couet was a short, thick-set man with gray hair and a goatee. He had a waxed mustache, penetrating brown eyes, and a kindly smile. He walked with a slight stoop, 
and dressed in a carelessly fitting black suit with a stiff white shirt and a black string tie. Born in Troyes, France, in 1857, he went on to become a pharmacist. He did so well at pharmacy that in 1896 he retired from business a wealthy man at the age of 39. Yet, four years later, he came out of retirement to become involved with Dr. Lebault. Dr. Lebault taught his patients that most of their ailments were in their minds and through hypnotism made his patients feel better. Coué found through his studies that Dr. Lebault's patients recovered extremely well. It was then that Coué began to develop some theories on his own, that what a person wanted to be was what he thought he could be. He pointed out that everyone could walk a plank 30 feet long and one foot wide on the ground, yet when the plank was placed at a height of say 100 feet off the ground, the person could not walk the plank. Why? because he thinks he will fall, and therefore, since he thinks he will fall, guess what? He will. By imagining that it would be easy to walk the plank on the ground, the person could. Yet, when the plank is in the air, the person feels that the feat is impossible. Therefore, the person cannot advance on the plank because he pictures himself falling. Everyone, claimed Kuwe, is a puppet of his imagination, which holds all the strings. And the only way people will cease to be puppets is when they have learned to guide their imaginations in the directions they want. In order to guide your imagination, Kuwe went on to say, you must use what he called auto-suggestion. If you wanted to be a better person, Kuwe suggested that every morning after you got up and every evening before you went to bed, you look into a mirror and repeat out loud to yourself twenty times in succession, Day by day in every way, I am getting better and better. Day by day in every way, I am getting better and better. Then, with great faith, confidence, and conviction, guess what would happen to the individual who told himself, that day by day in every way, he was getting better and better. He would get better and better because he believed in himself. As a result of all of this, thousands of Americans flocked to hear Kuwait and then practiced what he preached. Even the men of the clergy and medical doctors approved of it. Indeed, Emil Kuwait became the eternal voice of the fountain of optimism. And even today, Kuwait's idea still makes a lot of sense. While everyone in the country was reciting the verse that day by day in every way he was getting better and better, another new craze started sweeping the country. It was a game called Mahjong. Two brothers named White had introduced the game into the English-speaking clubs in Shanghai, where it became very popular. Then it was brought to the United States and it won immediate favor. So much so that W.A. Hammond, a San Francisco merchant, began to import Mahjong sets into the country on an ambitious scale. By September of 1922, he had sold over $50,000 worth of sets. Then he decided that perhaps an advertising campaign might help the popularity of the game, so he advertised free lessons and exhibitions. This pushed the game quickly, and by the time a year had gone by, Mahjong had become a nationwide craze. Chinese set makers could no longer keep up with the demand, and American manufacturers started making the sets. Everywhere throughout the country, people broke the wall and called out Pung or Chow and wielded the Ming box and talked learnedly about bamboos, flowers, seasons, one crack, south winds, east winds, and red dragons. The wealthy people bought $500 sets, while the rest of the country purchased theirs for $5.95. Soon, a Mahjong League of America was formed. This brought on fierce debates as to what rules the game was to be played by, what system of scoring would be used, and what constituted a limited hand. 
Practically all correct dinner parties of the 20s ended with everyone setting up ivory and bamboo tiles on a green baize table to play mahjong. Another craze to reach its peak in 1925 was the crossword puzzle. Crossword puzzles date back to at least 1913 and had been published by the New York World newspaper for years. But now as it happened, two young men who were launching their careers in the book publishing business decided to publish a crossword puzzle book. Big publishers felt that the book wouldn't sell, but Simon & Schuster felt it would. They were right, and by April of 1925, the first edition of the crossword puzzle book was sold out, and a second edition had to be put to press to meet the public demand for this new fad. The odd-looking crossword puzzle book with a pencil attached to it was a bestseller, and Simon & Schuster became publishers overnight. The craze swept everywhere, and it was a dull newspaper which did not have a daily puzzle. Dictionary sales bounded upward. Women became crossword widows as their husbands paid more attention to finding out a four-letter word meaning to jump high than they did them. The word, by the way, is leap. Then, too, there was a pastor in Pittsburgh who put the text of his sermon in the form of a crossword puzzle. Trains had dictionaries on them, and anybody you met on the street could tell you the two-lettered name of the Egyptian sun god, whose name was Ray, or provide you with a two-letter word which meant the opposite of up. By late 1925, the crossword puzzle craze began to die out, and by 1926, Contract Bridge moved in to replace it. Yet, despite the decline of the craze, you will still see people as they eat their morning breakfast or while they are riding the train to work, working on those crazy, mind-boggling crossword puzzles. 1925 also saw a new dance called the Charleston sweep the nation. It was originally introduced in cabarets, but it spread throughout the country like no other dance of its time. The Charleston was a very active dance, featuring exuberant sidekicks which contrasted sharply from the wiggling movements of the shimmy and other jazz dances of the early 20s. But because it was new, it was naturally condemned by moralists as an evil dance whose movements were provocative. On the intellectual side of things, the National Spelling Bee was initiated by the Louisville Courier-Journal. And even today, it is an event looked forward to by youngsters who wish to show off their spelling talents. Next, from the top of the world, news arrived from Nome, Alaska, that a diphtheria epidemic had broken out. In February, with the Bering Straits frozen over, the only way that an anti-diphtheria serum to combat the epidemic could be delivered would be by dog team, and from where the boat dropped off the serum to Nome would be a distance of 655 miles. So, a relay of dog teams to take the life-saving serum to Nome was set up, and the last lap of the journey was covered by a sled team driven by Gunnar Kassen. With his lead dog, Balto, Kassen pushed on through a blinding blizzard in sub-zero weather to deliver the serum. He was half dead from the cold and nearly blinded by the blizzard by the time he got to Nome. The antitoxin stopped the epidemic, and later on Kassen confessed that it was the dog, Balto, who made it through those last miles to Nome, and not him. 1925 also saw Vice President Charles Gates Dawes settle the German war reparation claims in Europe and establish a realistic way for all nations to pay off their World War I debt obligations. For his work in putting Europe's economy back on its feet with what eventually became known as the Dawes Plan and for alleviating the debt and inflationary miseries of Europe, Dawes was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. The human interest story of 1925 was the story of Floyd Collins. Collins was an obscure young Kentuckian who had been exploring an underground passage five miles from Mammoth Caves. His hope was to be able to find another cave which would attract tourists and from which he could make a little money by charging admissions. As he was crawling out of the cave, about 125 feet from the top in daylight, a cave-in occurred which pinned his foot under a huge rock. 
So narrow and steep was the passage that those who tried to dig him out had to move along on their stomachs in cold slime and water. In the cave on their stomachs, rescue workers would pass back from hand to hand the earthen rocks they pried loose with hammers. Only a few people might have heard of Collins and the predicament he was in, but for W.B. Miller, a young reporter for the Louisville Courier-Journal. Miller wormed his way down into the treacherous passage and interviewed Collins. Then he became engrossed in the efforts to rescue him. Miller's vivid dispatches brought the entire nation alive to watch the struggle to rescue Collins. When Miller had arrived at the cave, he found only three men at its entrance, warming themselves by a fire and wondering how to free Collins. Within a week, Miller's stories brought hundreds of people who lived in tents and milling crowds which had to be restrained by barbed wire barriers and state troopers to watch the attempts of rescue. For 18 days, the nation held its breath as news reports came out of Kentucky as to the progress of rescuing Collins. Then came the news. Collins had died. The efforts of man to free one of their kind had failed. A genuine frustration seemed to grip the nation. But even before the mourning for Collins was over, a new and what seemed at the time greater crises arose in the United States. It was the trial of John Thomas Scopes at Dayton, Tennessee. John Scopes was brought to trial at Dayton on May 5, 1925 for teaching the doctrines of evolution in his classroom at Central High School. The Scopes case had a genuine significance in that it dramatized one of the most momentous struggles of the age. That struggle was the conflict between religion and science between a modernist interpretation of the Bible and a fundamentalist interpretation. And it also involved the question of the separation of church and state. No trial of the 1920s was as controversial as was the Scopes case, and it all got started because of the works of Charles Darwin. In the 1850s, Charles Darwin, a British researcher, wrote a book called The Origins of the Species. In this book, he stated that he felt that man may well have descended from a lower form of animal. Then, in 1884, Darwin's theory was popularized in the United States by a lecturer by the name of John Fiske. The idea that man might have descended from a lower form of animal caused an uproar in the country with people who took the Bible literally. For, in the opening verses of the book of Genesis, it states that God created the heaven and the earth, Adam and Eve, and all that went with it in six days. Darwin's theory seemed to state that it took millions of years for life to evolve and not just six days. Two warring camps of thought now came into being. There were the fundamentalists who believed in the letter of the Bible and refused to accept any teachings whatsoever which seemed to be in conflict with the good book, even science. The other group of people who seemed to be more liberal in their beliefs were called modernists. They tried to reconcile their beliefs with scientific thought, throw out what was outdated, retain what was intellectually sound, and tried to mediate between Christianity and those skeptical spirits of the age. The position of the fundamentalists seemed almost hopeless. The tide of all rational thought in a rational age seemed to be running against them. But they were numerous, and there was no doubt where they stood. They stood solidly against any doctrines which were contrary to what the Bible said. The fundamentalists were especially strong in the South, and in Tennessee, the state legislature passed a bill on March 13, 1925, which stated, It shall be unlawful for any teacher in any of the universities and all other public schools in the state to teach any theory that denies the story of the divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals. Two men in Dayton, Tennessee, now decided to test the new law. They decided they would break the law, force a trial by the courts, and try to get the law declared unconstitutional. It was George Raplia, a mining engineer, along with John Scopes, a 24-year-old teacher of biology at Central High School in Dayton, who decided to test the new law. Fresh out of the University of Kentucky, Scopes would teach about evolution in his classes, and then his friend Raplia would have him arrested. The deed was done, 
and shortly thereafterwards, Scopes was arrested and put on trial. Within little or no time at all, newsmen sensed the potentiality of this story as they stated the case in headlines in newspapers across the country. Sleepy little Dayton, Tennessee, suddenly found that it was put on the map as overnight, everyone throughout the country knew where Dayton was. The public soon learned that the fight was a battle between fundamentalism on one hand and 20th century modernism on the other. Then to Dayton came the two real adversaries in this legal bout. The champions of both causes were headline personalities. To prosecute was William Jennings Bryan. He was three times an unsuccessful candidate for the presidency of the United States on the Democratic ticket in 1896, 1900, and 1908. Furthermore, he was Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson and, in his own right, was a famous orator. Bryan told the press that his reason for being there was to bring this slimy thing called evolution out of the darkness. He felt that the facts of religion and evolution would at last meet in a duel to the death. Brian considered himself an expert on the Bible, and he was willing to defend the word of his God against any who would attempt to defile or defame the words of the Holy Bible. For Scope's defense, to Dayton came the highly successful criminal lawyer, Clarence Darrell, who stated... If today you can take a thing like evolution and make it a crime to teach in the public schools, then, at the next session of the legislature, you may ban books and newspapers. Soon you may set Catholic against Protestant. And then you may set Protestant against Protestant. Next to Dayton came gaunt Tennessee farmers and their families in mule-drawn wagons and ramshackled fords. They were quiet, godly people in overalls, ready to defend their faith against any modernist. And yet, they were curious to know what all this new fang-dangle evolutionary theory might be about. Then, too, the atmosphere of Dayton was not simply that of rural piety. No, sir, not by a long shot. There were hot dog and lemonade vendors who set up stalls along the street as if it was some kind of a fair. Booksellers hawked volumes on biology. Over a hundred newspaper men poured into the town, and Western Union installed 22 telegraph operators in the back rooms of corner grocery stores. Even in the courtroom, reporters and cameramen crowded alongside grim-faced Tennesseans so as to get the best stories and pictures. Indeed, there was an air of suspense like that of an opening night at the theater. The trial opened with a pious prayer to which Darrow objected. Then the state presented evidence that Scopes taught in his classroom the fact that life had perhaps begun something like 600 million years ago. This assertion in the courtroom brought gasps of disbelief from the audience. It was a bitter trial and its climax came when the defense, which had been frustrated in every way, decided to call Brian himself to take the stand as an expert on the Bible. So great were the crowds and so hot was the temperature that Judge Ralston moved the court out of doors to a platform which had been built against the courthouse under some maple trees. Benches were set out where throngs listened as Brian charged that the insidious doctrine of evolution would undermine the faith of the children of Tennessee, rob them of their chance to enter the kingdom of heaven, and keep them from enjoying the bliss of eternal life. He further charged that Darrow had no other purpose of being at the trial than to slur at the Bible. Darrow, now in his shirt sleeves and galluses, and with a Bible on his knee objected to Brian's statement, and stated that he was there to examine Brian on his fool beliefs of religion, which no intelligent Christian on earth today believed. He went on to proclaim further that he was at this trial to show up fundamentalism and to prevent bigots and ignoramuses from controlling the educational systems in the country. And Brian, shaking his fist at Darrow, cried out that he was there to protect the word of God against the greatest atheist and agnostic in the United States, Darrow. It was a savage duel between the two men, with Brian coming out on the short end of the acrimonious encounter. 
The fact was that the fundamentalist faith which Brian represented could not take the witness stand and face up to the reason and skill of a person like Darrell. Two million words were telegraphed out of Dayton, and radio station WGN of Chicago broadcast into American homes one of the strangest trials which had ever taken place in a court of law. Despite the pros and cons, the facts still remained that Scopes did teach about evolution in the classroom, and that was against the law of the state of Tennessee. He was found guilty and fined $100. Within a week after the trial was over, Dayton began to return to its normal sleepy self as the cast of characters disappeared in history. Brian died eight days after the trial at the age of 65. He felt that even though his religion was old-fashioned and out of date, he would nevertheless be its champion or would die trying. Darrell died of old age in 1938, and Scopes? He gave up teaching and went to work as a geologist for an oil company. In 1955, interest in the trial came back because of a stage play called Inherit the Wind. In 1967, Scopes, who was then retired, wrote his reminiscences of the trial in a book called Center of the Storm. Although Scopes never uttered one word at his trial, in his book he stated that he felt the main issue was not religion, but was the principle of the separation of church and state. He wrote, If the state was allowed to dictate what a teacher must teach, then the state could force schools to teach the beliefs of the person in power, which could lead to oppression of all personal religious liberties. Scopes died at the age of 70 on October 21, 1970, at Shreveport, Louisiana. And what happened to everyone else who had come to Dayton for the trial? The reporters, the movie men, the syndicated writers, and the telegraph operators. They shook the dust of Dayton, Tennessee out of their clothes and mind. The monkey trial as it became known had been a good show for the front pages, but it was time to file the story away in the history books and move on to something else. And as for the fight between the fundamentalist and the modernist approach to the Bible, it still goes on. And I guess that the best thing to be said would be that the things in which a person believes are his beliefs and nobody else's. As the Scopes trial started to become a memory, another trial jumped into the public spotlight. It was the trial of Colonel Billy Mitchell of the United States Army on the charges of insubordination and conduct prejudicial to the service. Billy Mitchell was born on the French Riviera, where his American parents were vacationing. He was born into a large family of seven siblings, all of whom became well-educated. Mitchell went into the Army when the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898. He was an 18-year-old lad at the time and had been a junior at Columbia University. He entered the Army as a private, but after seven days he was made a second lieutenant. After the war with Spain, he served in the Philippines under General Arthur MacArthur. In 1909 he graduated from the Army Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and in 1915 he was assigned to the aviation section of the Army Signal Corps. Prior to the United States entering World War I, he was sent to France as an observer. When the United States became involved in the conflict, Mitchell became the first United States airman to fly over enemy lines. Furthermore, he was one of the most decorated men in the American Expeditionary Forces. He was promoted to Brigadier General, and after the war he returned to the United States to take up a post as Assistant Chief of the United States Air Services. In this position, he devoted himself to the promotion of aviation. He became a vociferous speaker and wrote books on the subject of the future of the aeroplane. He became an outspoken critic of the United States Navy and went on to say that they could not defend America's coast from an attack by aircraft. As Mitchell put it, the Navy's battleships were obsolete. And, if the Navy had any judgment at all, it would construct ships which were capable of launching and landing aircraft. Call it an, an aircraft carrier. His struggle for air power took on the characteristics of a challenge to sea power. To prove his point that aircraft could sink a battleship, a test was set up near Hampton Roads, Virginia. 
There the old captured German battleship Ostfriesland, built in World War I and designed by the Germans to be unsinkable, would be the target ship to see if Mitchell could prove his case. Mitchell did. On the third and final attack, the battleship Ostfriesland turned over and sunk. Mitchell had set out to prove the supremacy of air power, and he had succeeded. Needless to say, the Navy came up with its own version of the sinking of the battleship. They pointed out that if the ship had been moving instead of being anchored, and had the ship been firing back at the attacking planes, the results would not have been the same. Therefore, the Navy concluded, the test proved nothing. Nevertheless, Mitchell persisted in bugging everybody. He told anyone who would listen to him that the United States, in order to protect its shores, must have an air force capable of flying out and destroying an enemy before it could get close to our coast. To silence Mitchell, the government sent him on a tour of the Pacific and Orient. He was to inspect the United States Air Services and to investigate air activities of Japan and China. Mitchell was so impressed with the Japanese buildup of air power that when he returned from his tour of the Pacific, he predicted that Japan would one day, with its air power, attack the United States' possessions at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Therefore, to protect the country, he went on to say, we should build ships capable of landing and launching aircraft and have an adequate air force to defend our shores from attack. There was no doubt about the fact that Mitchell was now getting on the nerves of his superiors, as he was demoted to the rank of colonel and assigned to duty at a remote outpost of civilization at a place called Fort Sam Houston in Texas. But this did not silence Mitchell. When a great air disaster took place and one of his best friends went down with the dirigible Shenandoah, which was torn apart by a storm as it made its way across the Midwest to put on a display at a state fair, Mitchell issued a public statement which would bring forth his court-martial. He stated, This accident is the direct result of the incompetence, the criminal negligence, and the almost treasonable negligence of our national defense by the Navy and War Departments in their attempt to keep down the development of aviation. I can stand by no longer and see these disgusting performances take place at the expense of the lives of our people and to the disillusionment of the American public. Mitchell had deliberately put himself in a position for either a court-martial or reprimand. He hoped to have a trial so he could prove his accusations against the Navy and War Departments. He further hoped to stir public opinion to do something about the decaying policies toward air power in the country. Mitchell got his wish as President Coolidge ordered him back to Washington, D.C. and set October 28, 1925 for his court-martial. Mitchell got two of his friends, Frank Reed and Clayton Bissell, both experts on aviation, to defend him. Reed and Bissell agreed that Mitchell was guilty as charged of violating the 96th Article of War. But they also agreed that the trial should be used to educate the American public on the necessity of aviation for our national defense. At the old armory building in Washington, D.C., the trial got underway. The defense opened with a plea for dismissal of the case. They stated that Mitchell was merely exercising the right of freedom of speech, and if the First Amendment didn't apply to the Army, why didn't the Constitution say so? But the court-martial board would not accept the idea of having the charges dismissed and continued the trial as the prosecutor read the 96th Article of War. It was an all-encompassing law that gave the Army almost unlimited authority. According to this article, all the prosecution had to do was to show that Mitchell, by his statement, had discredited the service and was guilty of the charges of insubordination and conduct prejudicial to the service. At the trial, which lasted until December 17, 1925, the defense attorneys tried to prove that everything Mitchell had stated would come true while all the prosecution had to prove was that he had been insubordinate. Mitchell was found guilty of violating the 96th Article of War and was sentenced to immediate suspension from rank and command with forfeiture of all pay and allowances. President Coolidge upheld the court-martial decision, and so the only thing left for Mitchell to do was to resign from the service, which he did in February of 1926. 
After he resigned from the service, he tirelessly, as a private citizen, continued to campaign for what he felt the United States must have in case it became involved in another war, and that thing was air power. Then came the crash of the stock market in 1929, which was followed by the Great Depression. The public's attention shifted to other and more pressing problems than national defense, and during the 1930s, Mitchell died of complications from influenza. And so it would be that Billy Mitchell brought disgrace on himself to prove to his countrymen that they would need to have an unsurpassed Air Force to defend themselves in the future from any would-be invader. Just so you won't think that this one man's crusade was in vain, in July of 1926, the Congress created something called the Army Air Corps, and by 1932, the United States Navy launched its first aircraft carrier, the USS Ranger. And oh yes, all the other predictions Mitchell made did come to pass. The Japanese did attack and did sink the United States battleship fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And yes, it was air power which did win the war for civilization and mankind, as Mitchell predicted it would. And yes, maybe you can learn a lesson from this one man, and that lesson might be that if you believe in something strong enough, don't let it die. Give it everything you've got until you can give no more. And oh yes, what about a remembrance for what Billy Mitchell did? In 1946, the Congress of the United States authorized the Mint to strike a medal in his honor. It was a medal which commemorated the struggle for the things in which he believed, gave recognition for his foresight in pioneering service to aviation, and honored him for his devotion to the people of this country for which he was willing to wreck his career and to give his life. On the commercial side of things, by October of 1925, the great get-rich-quick Florida land boom was at its peak. Hard-headed men and women were exposed to the most delirious fever of real estate speculation that had ever attacked the United States. The Florida land boom speculation is said to have exceeded any gold rush or any other business stampede in the history of the country to that time. The Dixie Highway was clogged with automobiles from every part of the country as people wanted to get near Miami. Why? Because the whole strip of the Florida coastline from Palm Beach southward was going to be developed into an American Riviera. So, what you had to do was to get there first and get in on the ground floor. You would purchase your land as cheaply as you could, sit on it for a month or so, and then sell it to somebody else for double what you'd paid for the land originally. Boy, what a way to make some quick, easy money. What caused the Florida land boom? Well, first of all, there was Florida's great climate and its accessibility by people living in the cold northeastern part of the United States who wanted to live in this warm-weathered paradise. Second, there was the fact that the automobile was rapidly making nomads out of Americans. Third, there was the great confidence in the Coolidge prosperity. And fourth was advertising. So yes, the public bought. They would buy anything, anywhere, so long as it was in Florida. All one had to do was to announce a new development, be it honest or be it fraudulent, and as long as it was in Florida, people scrambled to buy up lots. It was no wonder then that Miami became known as the fair white goddess of cities. But as usual, sooner or later, booms turned to bust. And in the case of the Florida land boom, it was sooner. In 1926, Two major hurricanes showed what a soothing tropical breeze could do when it got a running start from the West Indies. The hurricanes were the worst Florida had ever witnessed. Damage was so severe that the Red Cross ran out of funds to help the homeless. The hurricanes caused the death of 372 persons, destroyed over 5,000 homes, left 18,000 families homeless, and caused property damage which was estimated to be in excess of $80 million. By 1927, as one approached Miami by road, he saw dead subdivisions and half-obliterated names on crumbling gates. The development of Florida as a paradise in which to live would have to wait for the future. Despite the failure of the Florida land boom, prosperity for the most part existed throughout the rest of the country. There were plenty of jobs, and most of the working people had plenty of money to spend.
1923, United States Steel abandoned the 12-hour day, seven-day week. And then, much to the shock of the industrial community, Henry Ford instituted his eight-hour day, five-day week for the people who work for him. Labor leaders were quick to congratulate Ford for his avant thinking, as they felt the new work week would be a means by which to check overproduction and to limit unemployment. Then, International Harvester Company, not to be outdone by Ford, announced something even more electrifying. They were going to give their employees a two-week annual vacation with pay. With pay? Incredible! Construction during the 1920s also seemed to have no end to it, as during that decade, New York City got a brand new skyline. If Europeans who had traveled to the United States in 1910 were awed by 20-story skyscrapers with elevators in them, when they returned to the United States in the late 20s, they would have been struck dumb to find that the old buildings were dwarfed by new giants. High above the city streets, helmeted workers balanced themselves on girders as taller and taller the building soared. The skyscraper became a radiant, defiant display to the world of American energy and optimism. It was an expression of the ambulant American spirit, as was the Gothic cathedral to the medieval age of Europe. Into this wonder world of construction came Sister Amy Semple McPherson. Amy was born in Canada in 1890. She grew up on hard work and religion, and in 1907, at the age of 17, she married an itinerant Pentecostal minister by the name of Robert Semple. Amy followed her husband no matter where he went to do his work, and while preaching in China, tragedy struck. Her husband was stricken with what was called Eastern fever and died one month after Amy gave birth to her first child. Upon her return to the United States, Amy sought to recapture the elusive bluebird of happiness, and since loneliness was obviously unendurable to her, she married once again. This time she married a grocery clerk by the name of Harold McPherson. She had a child by this union, but unfortunately, the marriage eventually ended in divorce and unhappiness. Then Amy got the call to go preach the word of God as she set forth on a venture of soul-saving by becoming a traveling evangelist. Lugging her children along, and with the usual paraphernalia of a traveling evangelist, a car and a tent, she preached in the north in the summer and the south in the winter. Each year her technique became better, and it was during this time in her life that she formulated her four-square gospel creed, which was infallibility of the Bible, conversion, physical healing by religious means, and the personal return of Jesus Christ to this earth. She published a little magazine, the Four Square Monthly, and began to acquire a small but loyal following. Soon the crowds to which she preached got bigger and bigger, and the tent gave way to lecture halls. Then the lecture halls gave way to city auditoriums. In San Diego, California, at Balboa Park in 1921, Amy was lifted out of the run-of-the-mill small-timers into the big time. 30,000 people attended this meeting, and it was at this meeting that her first sensational miracle took place. A middle-aged paralytic rose from her wheelchair and took a few stumbling steps. When the audience saw this, they came forth to be baptized by Sister Amy. Never once did Sister Amy contend that she was a miracle worker or that she could actually heal the sick. As she put it, I am not the healer. Jesus is the healer. I am only the person who opens the door and says, Come in. From that time on, Sister Amy was famous. And since she was doing so well, why not build a temple? So it was that Sister Amy built her temple and held revival meetings in it on a year-round basis. On January 1, 1923, the Angeles Temple was opened by the rushes of Echo Park Lake in Los Angeles, California. There, trumpeters blared out majestic sounds, and Amy pulled the string that unveiled an electrically illuminated rotating cross atop the temple that could be seen at night for a distance of 50 miles. The temple cost $1,500,000, had a seating capacity for 5,000 persons, 
a $75,000 broadcasting station, a great commissary, a theological seminary with hundreds of students, a vast organ, a collection of costumes for Amy and her choir, and from the time that the temple was open, a group of templeites and relay teams prayed continuously day and night in response to tens of thousands of requests for prayers. At her temple, Amy proceeded to entertain people who came to see her. She entertained them with pageants, picture slides of the Holy Lands, musically dramatized sermons, and of course, healing sessions. Before her death in 1948, she baptized over 40,000 people in the temple. Furthermore, she established 400 branch churches, or as she called them, lighthouses, and located 178 missionary stations throughout the world. Amy's basic formula was, make things simple and easy to remember. To this, she preached her four-square gospel. But the most important factor in her success was the way in which she substituted cheerfulness for gloom. She gave people love and happiness, relaxed them and released their minds from the frightful visions of eternal damnation. In the place of these frightful visions, she gave the people flowers, music, golden trumpets, choirs, and angels. Furthermore, Amy was in the right place to be an angel of joy, as during the decade from 1920 to 1930, new residents moved into Los Angeles. Most of the people who moved to Los Angeles during this period of time were from small towns and farming areas in the Midwest. They were aching with loneliness and wanted to know someone. They found their heart's desire at the Angelus Temple in Sister Amy, where they shared happiness, the happiness of kindred souls. Amy was just what they needed, and at the close of each of her sermons, she would ask the sinners to come forward and be saved. It was done in a flare of fashion and pageantry. On another occasion, Amy staged a 14-hour Holy Ghost rally of continuous preaching with a team of preachers spelling each other. When one minister would collapse with fatigue, Amy would leap up and take his place. There was no doubt about the fact that Amy entertained the folks, but she had a message they wanted to hear. The post-war period was full of restlessness, and there was a craze for entertainment and a passion for frivolity, all of which gave birth to something called the Jazz Age. The flapper had arrived, a little tipsy with short skirts and bobbed hair. It was a time for petting and necking, for hip flasks and roadside taverns, for movie palaces and Hollywood movies filled with scandal and commotion. All America seemed to be stepping out on an emotional binge, and Sister Amy Semple McPherson was determined to lead those people who wanted to be saved to heaven. So it was that Sister Amy, who arrived in Los Angeles in 1921 with $100 in a broken-down car, by 1926 owned a temple and a residence valued at over $3 million. Amy became more than just a household word in Los Angeles. She was a folk hero, a civic institution, and a patron saint. She breathed new life and meaning into an ancient and powerful myth. The myth was that of the miracle worker, the faith healer, the one who comes to lift the people out of their bondage. Then, on May 18, 1926, Sister Amy disappeared. The newspapers had been carrying stories about Ronald Armisen giving up his polar expedition, the American embassy being bombed in Buenos Aires, and President Coolidge returning to Washington, D.C. after a cruise on the presidential yacht, the Mayflower. On the back pages of the papers were stories of stunts, escapades, and broken records. There were stories of prosperity ablaze on the land, and rum runners with flashlights and machine guns busy getting their merchandise ashore at Malibu. But now, all the headlines screamed that Sister Amy had gone swimming at Venice Beach near Los Angeles and had vanished. Late afternoon extras told that, that Sister Amy was gone. Thousands of people gathered about the temple and near the beach where Amy had disappeared. For 32 days, the armies of the faithful kept a night and day vigil of prayers going at the temple. Bonfires were built on the beach. People wept, prayed, moaned, and sang songs. Patrols were sent up and down the beach. Airplanes swept low over the water, and deep-sea divers prowled the ocean floor. Then an ecstatic follower felt she glimpsed an image of Amy on the bright, shimmering waters of the Pacific, 
and was forcibly restrained from plunging into the surf. One young man by the name of Robert Browning, however, jumped into the sea crying out at the top of his lungs, I'm going after her. He drowned before he could be dragged out of the surf. Then all of a sudden, the newspapers picked up the scent of scandal. Did Sister Amy die in the surf, or was she just trying to go off and be alone with Kenneth Ormiston, who ran the radio station at the Angelus Temple? With everybody now looking for Amy, she decided that she should return. So, on the morning of June the 23rd, Sister Amy stumbled out of the darkness and knocked on the door of a cottage at Aquapuieta, Mexico, which is across the border from Douglas, Arizona. Once discovered, as she had planned to be, Amy told a lurid tale of being kidnapped and held in detention. She gave a fanciful account of the kidnappers who were Rose, Steve, and Jake. The story was in almost every newspaper throughout the country. Amy's disappearance and return was one of the greatest stories of the 1920s, as it contained all the right ingredients. It had sex, mystery, underworld characters, spooks, kidnappers, the ocean, the hot desert sand, escape, and a thrilling finale. Over a period of time, Amy's story was exposed as a crazy hoax. The public, with its passion for scandal inflamed, its appetite for sensationalism whetted, were like a pack of salacious hounds baying about Amy, eager for a kill. They wanted to force Amy to confess her sins, to make public the intimacies of her love life, and provide them with the spicy details of the time, the place, and the circumstances. There was a trial in Los Angeles where the enemies of Amy charged her as being a charlatan. But the trial never came to an end, as all charges against her were dropped. Amy took this as a vindication. As soon as the case against her was dismissed, Sister Amy departed on a national rehabilitation tour. But much to her surprise, the tour misfired. Somehow, Sister McPherson was now just plain Amy. The one-time miracle worker had become a woman of notoriety. In cities where she had scored her greatest evangelical triumphs, she was now greeted with relative indifference as she spoke to half-empty halls. From that time on, there was nothing but a mounting sense of insecurity, exhaustion, and despair for Amy. Then, too, when the stock market crashed, demolishing the crazy structure of the Coolidge prosperity, new messiahs made their appearances in Southern California. Upton Sinclair promised to end poverty in California. Dr. Francis Townsend of Long Beach promised pensions for the aged. And Willis and Lawrence Allen promoted their ham and eggs or $30 every Thursday scheme. Yet, in those troubled times, Amy managed to survive and held a remnant of her following together, even though her flock was now reduced to between eight and 10,000 people. Then, too, she was somehow out of date. You know, old hat, a bit of a bore. She was no longer a world-famous evangelist, but just another wacky American. Sister Amy lasted through the 30s, and in September of 1944, passed away. Her funeral was one of the greatest attended services ever held in California. Her eulogy was delivered by Howard P. Courtney of Los Angeles, who described Amy as a country girl who was now entering God's Hall of Fame. And so it was that Amy Semple McPherson, a woman who believed with all of her heart in goodness and kindness and who aroused such love and devotion in the hearts of thousands of little people and who for a moment in her own life sought to find some happiness for herself by stepping out of character, did enter God's Hall of Fame. And for those who can remember the 20s, they can still see in their minds Sister Amy chasing the devil with a pitchfork and allowing sunlight to come into the souls of those she had touched.